Welcome to our Milk and Meat live stream. I am Sean, and this is my lovely wife. Hey guys, I'm Lindsay. One second, guys. We need to try to fix some technical stuff. We're having constant problems tonight, yeah. so we're trying to get the broadcast <laughs> working properly. Um, not sure why. So thanks for joining us. Uh, tonight we'll do a live Q&A. So just, we just keep it simple. If you got Bible questions, we try to do our best to answer them. We don't pretend to know everything, but um, I've been studying the book for a long time. People have told me I'm decent at answering these questions. So you guys are welcome to ask us any questions. And my wife is here to make fun of me and have lovely commentary as well. So you guys are, um, you guys are welcome to ask any questions. Here's how it works. Put the caps lock on your keyboard and then ask your question, right? So that all of your letters are in capitalization that way, myself and all the moderators in the live chat can actually see your question amongst all the other comments. So that's how I know that you're talking to me. And that's how I know that you're asking us a question tonight. So we'd love to answer your questions. Uh, we just have to see them. So put in all caps. We appreciate it, guys. Thank you, moderators, for being here tonight. Big shout out. Thank you so much, guys, for being in the live chat and helping us with links, helping us moderate, keeping it all nice and calm and everything. That's just a major blessing. You guys are awesome. Um, and then we also wanted to give a quick little uh, shout out here. One second. <clears throat> it's not so, so much a shout out as we want to bring a need before the body. This is what I was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a, we wanted to, to introduce an idea here. This is Casey Marie and her children. Um, she has undergone a, a tragedy. Tornado came through and destroyed her house. And so this is... Um, uh, her family and her, and she has set up a give. Oh, sorry, I don't know why it did that. She has set up a give send go for her destroyed home. Um, and that we just want to kind of bring this to the attention of the body because this is, you know, a mother with three children that needs some help at this point. So, um, this is some of the pictures from the damage from the tornado from her, from her property. And it's an unlivable situation. There's your car that was destroyed. And um, so there's so if you want, I'll go ahead and take over because I kind of have been Alex the one, Stein. I kind of have been the one handling this, yeah. Um, so back in Is December, it? you guys might remember um, that there were some massive tornadoes out in the east. Um, and Casey is in Tennessee. Let me double check, I'm pretty sure the name of her city is Union City. Um, and so a lot of people lost everything in those, uh, that tornado or tornadoes. I can't remember if it was a series of storms or how that happened, but basically, um, Casey and her children have lost their entire home, um, and their vehicle. And she has been struggling quite a bit since, and I've been kind of keeping an eye on the situation for a while and the father really put her heavy on my heart over the last like month. And I finally just had to stop ignoring that. And I went ahead and decided to check in on her to see how things were going because she had originally started to GoFundMe. Um, and then GoFundMe kind of did all their things with the trucker and the Canada thing. And um, everybody really wanted to stop supporting that site. And so she's had some donations come in. She's gotten a little bit of help. She's managed to get into a rental home, um, but she is still in dire need of a vehicle and probably at least a month or two of rent while she, if she's able to get a vehicle while she gets working. Once she has the vehicle situation figured out, she can start working and get back into all of that. 
Um, so we wanted to bring this need before the body. If there's anyone in that area that has a vehicle, that's also something we wanted to reach out to you guys and put before you as an option. Um, so we had her put this fundraiser together. We only put it at $5,000. Obviously that could be too, way too little. I mean, it really just depends. I believe they accept more than that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we can adjust that. Yeah. Um, but basically she needs really is a need of a vehicle. And if there's someone in the area that can actually donate a vehicle to her, that might be a lot easier than well, we'll just let, we'll raising money. On people's heart. Just what, letting, yeah, just letting just, people know there's this other I'm trying to direct you how, but yeah. just as far as whatever the father puts in your heart towards helping her, if you have the, the, the resources to help her, um, please reach out to her. We have the link to the ghost gifts and go campaign in the video description below of this video tonight so that you can directly go there and you can, you can give to her. So yeah. And give send go is a Christian based site. Yeah. So that's also the other good thing. Um, so we'll be monitoring her situation and we'll, you know, bring her, you know, her prayer needs and her financial needs before you guys, while we try and help her figure that out. As you know, we're not a really very big ministry and we don't take on a whole lot of fundraiser things for people. We just, we just don't have the time and the ability to vet things and all of that. But I've known Casey for like four years on my Facebook. She's a good sister of mine. Um, and I just have happened to reach out to her you know, recently, because I really felt like someone needed to check in on her and see how she's doing and see if the body can come together and help her with anything. So we just wanted to bring that before you guys. And thank you all for your prayers, definitely for her situation. And anyone that feels moved to um, help financially, thank you very much for that. So yes, please consider it. Thank you. So. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Um, and as someone that has uh, grown up in Tornado mm -hmm. Alley, I definitely know what that's like. It's literally just, you know, every, all your possessions are strewn across the block yeah. and uh, they're all destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then it's just a rough time. So thank you everybody for, for reaching out to her if it's on your heart. All right. Okay. Well, looks like we have our first question. Looks well, I think I saw a few questions before this. Uh, country kid. So country kid is asking, you said something about the heaven and the earth never passing away. Can you explain that more? Um, well, they never pass away. So the heaven is what's called the firmament, Genesis 1, 6 through 8. It's the structure that um, is above us, that en encloses us, as well as has multiple layers to it, where the angels and the Father and the Son live above us in an their own enclosed reality as well. It's a large structure. It's called the heavens, plural. Um, and then the earth itself, uh, just like the promise of Genesis 8, 22, seed time and harvest will never pass away. Sun and moon are in a locked covenant with each other. They're never going to go away. Um, we see that the firmament that is rolled open like a scroll in Revelation 21, 1 through 3 is renewed. I did an entire video on that. Uh, it's called New Heaven and New Earth and on my channel. You're welcome to check that out. And I go over the Greek in Revelation 21 to show you it's not the word neos for brand new. It's the word kainos for renewed, something that's made new again. So it doesn't mean it goes away. It just means that it's temporarily adjusted, damaged, augmented, whatever you want to say, the father renews the heaven. And then the earth that's coming down is the actual piece of land. That's the word in the Greek that the piece of earth coming down is the new Jerusalem. But the earth plane that we live on, that's enclosed by the firmaments, as the Bible describes it, um, that's never going away. Uh, this is why the meek at the resurrection, we inherit the earth, the believers, the teachable, those who are willing to learn. That's what the word meek means. Those who are willing to learn God's commandments and practice them in faith and belief, um, 
are qualifying themselves for the resurrection. Yeshua is the only one that makes that possible, our Messiah. And at that point, we inherit the New Jerusalem that comes down to this plane of existence on the earth. So we don't go to live in the heavens above. That's where the angels were designed to live. We were always meant to live here. So that's they, they never go away. Hopefully that's a, a well-rounded answer for you, brother. All right. Colleen Marie is asking about the divine council, according to Psalm 82. What's my understanding of the divine council? Um, I believe that I don't. Okay, I know that from what I understand, you're you're pulling that term from Michael Heiser's book and his work, the divine council, because he talks about and uses that specific term a lot. That term is not in scripture, but he uses it to reference, um, you know, archangels or arch, uh, archons, if you will. Um, beings that are basically different levels of angels to be in council. You know, some people think these are the shepherds that Enoch talks about, part of the 70 shepherds. Um, I believe that the divine council is literally just the archangels and a part of the 24 elders in heaven above. These are not men, these are angels, and they are the group of people that the Father and the Son would have turned to in Genesis 1.26 to say, let us make man in our image. And that's not him asking for permission, that's basically... A part of the council where he just as the father does and tells us in Amos 5 2, he he announces his plans to his servants, right? This is how he works. He it's a part of his Torah, right? He he with lots of um with lots of counsel, there's wisdom. I can't remember the proverb that says that right now, but this is a part of the way the father's behavior is, right? He doesn't um he likes to announce what he's going to do to his servants. Okay. So that's my understanding of the divine council. So what does Psalm 82 actually say then if it doesn't it say says, it's divine speak council? to the sons and it's, um, he says, you know, Yahweh Elohim sits in amongst the council of Elohim. And it talks about how you have not done justice. You have not done righteousness. The earth is out of course. Psalms 82 specifically to my understanding, it's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm up in the air about it. As as far as is it talking to the corrupt rulers of the day of Israel because they were considered Elohim as John as Yeshua says in John chapter ten, yeah. uh, did I not say to whom the word of the Lord came are gods right which right. is rulers it doesn't always mean celestial beings right yeah. it's also a word for rulers the word Elohim um, or it could have been talking about the corrupt watchers from before the flood from which the courses of the earth literally became out of sorts and it caused the flood um, but it's hard to retroactively place that as a conversation that's pulled from the past it could be it's just hard with such limited information so okay. ultimately regardless it's that it shows a dichotomy in that verse in the seven verses of psalm 82 it shows a dichotomy of there's a big big g god sitting amongst little g gods right yeah. so if if the, for nothing else it just kind of plays into what we try to explain on the channel uh, for three or four years now, which is this word Elohim. This it has. It's not just talking about the Almighty God all the time. It's a it's a word that's multiple uses, right? Just like the word Shemayim, the word heaven in Hebrew. And so, therefore, the gods, little g gods, that is a word that is referred to for celestial beings, for like angels, right? Um, in Psalm forty five six and seven, it's, it talks about Yahweh speaks to the Messiah, his son, and calls him God, right? This is how we can have in Isaiah nine seven nine. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through through 8, I believe, you can ha have the Messiah, the prophecy of the Messiah being spoken of as mighty Elohim, because he's a ruler. That word doesn't always mean the most high, but it can be used and is often used for rulers. Um, and what are the nature of those rulers? Well, it depends on the context. 
I'm sorry, guys. We're let me see if I can work with our camera and lights a little bit more here. Let's try to get this some of our technical difficulties wrapped up. Yeah, the misunderstanding of the word Elohim is probably the root of like so many divisions in the body and people just refusing to accept that that word has more meanings than just, you know, a title denoting our father in heaven. Yeah. And then the Trinitarians run wild with yes. it. And they just think it must be yeah. talking about God, the, the, the most high God, the almighty every single time. So that's um, why context is so important. Yeah. That's why we're <laughs> always teaching context. Okay. So, um, Matthew Whittier, thank you for the super chat. I appreciate that. He's saying it works. So I'll rewatch your answer. I love the book of Enoch. But someone brought up that Enoch was taken up after 365 years, and that would have been Renoa. So how was he on earth for his birth? Um, I did do a video on the lifespan of Enoch and how he lived approximately 665 to 666 years, um, which would place him in the timeline of Noah being alive, if that's what you're asking. I think that's what you're asking. And I think it's based off of um, Enoch 103 or 105 um, when, when Noah's born and Methuselah runs to the garden to ask Enoch is, is, is no, he was worried that because Noah was born looking very unique. Uh, they were worried that he was, that, that Noah's mother had slept with one of the angels. <laughs> and so they were, they were concerned um, that he was a Nephilim. And so, they go to the to the garden to ask Enoch about this, and Enoch is like, "No, no, no. He's he's born of of Lamech. He's truly Lamech's son, um, but he's just special and anointed for a purpose." You know. So appreciate the super chat, uh, my friend. And then if you go to my channel and look at, type in, um, "Where is Enoch now?" I think that's the title of it. It's one of our previous milk and meat we did like a year and a half ago. I go over that timeline and show you a full breakdown of how I come to that, with all the scriptures, of course, uh, how we came to that conclusion. So hopefully that's helpful to you. Scott McVicker, you said, I've seen you use helps word studies, but I can't seem to figure out where to find this. It's just an added resource inside of biblehub.com, which is an online biblical resource site. So they pull from multiple different commentaries, and that's one of them that they occasionally pull from under certain verses, basically. They're probably the nicest of the Bible websites out there if you haven't checked them out. B Bible Hub, yeah. Yeah, BibleHub.com. Yeah. It's just real easy to you know flip through translations and all that. All right, Alice, Allison Beck is asking, why do you start the Passover when you're 20 years of age, Jubilees 49.7? Um, to me, to my... 4917. To my understanding, the the 20 year mark is when you become a man. It's your own duty to go out and you're responsible on your own head, if you will, for joining the Passover. So earlier in that chapter, it talks about reasons that give you an excuse not to go to the Passover. Right. If you're too far away and you can't make it back in time, um, that's understandable. But if you're too far away, because as far as I can remember, as far as you being away for business, that's not acceptable. <laughs> so the idea was that if you get caught, uh, I guess, away and you just can't make it, the father's not going to hold you. You know, at the time when the temple was set up and there was actively in the priesthood and their sovereignty in the land, he expects you to come to come to Jerusalem, to the priesthood, to the gate, the doorway, of the tent of meeting or the, the temple so that you could offer your sacrifice. 
um, if you couldn't do that, there was a caveat for that. And the people that would be responsible for doing that starts at the age of 20 years old. Everyone under that is under the household of their parents and will be brought with their parents as the family is brought for the occasion. Any thoughts on that? Um, no, I mean, I'm going to assume that you're correct on that. I don't see any other logical explanation for it. I mean, it's very much um, would explain why human beings in most countries seem to have this concept of a legal age at some point. Do you know what I mean? Like someone mm -hmm. when people are considered a, an, an officially an adult. Yeah, this is the time in the temple census for 20 year olds. We see that in Exodus. It's also 20 year olds were allowed to be in the army. Um, they also, uh, as far as the Levites go, I think it was 20 was the earliest age they could be uh, step into service and in different times of service as a part of the priesthood that helped with temple duties, not the high priesthood that offered certain sacrifices, but other other uh, servants that helped in the temple. I think it was 20 years old as well. So it seems to be, this is why I've always speculated, that seems to be the age of accountability to the father is 20 years old for, for the men. So just a fun thought there. Good question. All right, Alex Aguilar is asking in your past videos, you teach that Nimrod is the beast. How does he get resurrected? Um, he's let out by the angel that comes down with a key that lets him out. So how, I don't understand. There's no text that I've found that tells you this specific process. I've only hinted at the process that I could, that I have researched. It's in my Apollyon video where I talk about the Dijet, which is this ancient Egyptian device, or it's probably just an ancient device of the ancient world, but the only the Egyptians seem to talk about it. And it's something that supposedly, according to ancient Egyptian writings, it was what Ra, who is what the Bible calls Satan, it's what he used to change Osiris, whom the Bible refers to as Nimrod, to change his flesh, his mortal flesh, into some sort of immortal flesh, right? To make him a sense of Nephilim, uh, which allows him to somehow interact in a, in, in a longer lifespan than a normal man, basically. But he's locked away and he's let back out. Um, and this is why we see him coming back out, which is his name, Apollo or Apollyon, um, in Revelation 9, 1 through 11. And so that's where it's um, he's resurrected, I should say, because he comes back into the game. He comes back onto Earth. But if I understand what the Egyptian texts were saying and you you connect that with how the Hebrew scriptures explain what Nephilim are, then he technically never truly died. He's just going to return to power as Revelation 17, 8 through 11 explains. Mm -hmm. That makes any sense. That's That was kind of the whole point of him undergoing the process of getting a Nephilim style body so that he could come back and get in the game and avoid the immediate judgment of the immediate death of mortal man like everyone else. So mm -hmm. this is kind of a it's a great question. There's no specific scripture, but it's putting a whole bunch of ideas together and looking at the, the most logical conclusion. So kind of makes me think about the verse that talks about people seeking death and not finding it. Well, so that whatever is, they've done to themselves, whatever sorcery has gone on there. Well, that is exactly what he, the first beast and the second beast are responsible right. for with the mm -hmm. things, the, the scorpion chimera things that come out with Apollyon, mm -hmm. they sting people and they look for death and can't find it. Wow. This is why I've always told people, the, it's the fifth trumpet. It's the marker at 42 months before Yeshua comes. And this is why everyone who takes the mark of the beast, it's my understanding that they've also been stung by these things. Hmm. And this is why they've, they're basically turned into Baal zombies. 
they're just like they're they're not thinking they're now npcs controlled by the beast this is why it says everyone who takes the mark must undergo the wrath of the lamb because when he when yeshua returns um the beast basically first beast with the second beast and, and the dragon they call on everyone that's taken the mark to come and fight against yeah. yeshua right that's mm -hmm. how they can control them to get them to come over to the valley of Armageddon to, to cross the as much as land mass as they can to get to the valley of armageddon and try to fight yeshua's return which no person in their sane mind would do that yeah if they saw the angelic armies coming from heaven they yeah. wouldn't try to fight them but they would need controlled people to do that that's my understanding of it um alex velez is asking what is the most important tour to live by Did you like this one sweet i'm pretty sure yeshua was asked a similar question and he said the two greatest commandments in the Torah are to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. So what that means, not that all the rest of the commandments are not important. It means that all the rest of the commandments is how we do those things. Right. So to love God, we keep certain commandments like keeping his Sabbath holy doing things outwardly in our walk to show him that we love him and to love our neighbor. We also follow his commandments that teach us how to treat our neighbors. You know, if you find your neighbor's dog in your yard, you take the dog home, things like that. So quite, quite a simple answer, really, yeah. if we just let the text If you find your neighbor's wife to be a dog that wants to come to your house, you don't let her come over. <laughs> you know, there's, you know, there's some ways to apply these things. <laughs> So, yeah. By the way, I was kind of going off the biblical term for dog, which means ancient prostitute. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, Sorry. I picked just up in on case, it. just in case the audience didn't pick up on that. We need our little laugh track. <laughs> that was a that was a deep cut, though. That was a bibl <laughs> biblical deep cut, ancient ancient reference. <laughs> All right, we got the Baptist question. Mr. J, what are your thoughts about Christians listening to secular music? Should we or not? Should we collect our CDs in a pile and burn them? I've been to burning to CD burning fests when I was younger. Ah, sorry. I, I, I knew it. that I was going to happen. <laughs> Drop the mouse. Well, I may not be qualified to answer this question because I was just listening to Pink Floyd in the car today on our errands. Um, I would say that for me personally, if I, if I can go ahead go and start ahead. Go ahead. for me personally, um, I felt, I have felt a pretty firm conviction in my spirit about certain secular songs that I used to love, you know, when I, before I was a believer and I listen to them now and just naturally, I just, I don't like the way they sound. I don't like the way they make me feel. And I totally know what the lyrics are saying now. Um, like I used to be a major, major tool fan um, to the point where I have, you know, their artwork tattooed on my body, but I came to Christ and have not really been able to listen to tool ever since I haven't been able to listen to Led Zeppelin. Like there's certain bands that have just overtly satanic lyrics that I hear it and I can't unhear it. There's other secular music that I still enjoy. And if, 
is that my flesh? Is that carnal? I don't know because is all secular music by is, by by its very um, existence just evil because it's not specifically about God? Is Mariah Carey singing about having a vision of love? Is that somehow evil? Uh, you know, there's other even like less well less well known um, or lesser known um, artists that we like to listen to like there's someone named Ray La Montagna that I've been listening to for years and he writes beautiful love songs. Right. Um, what I was getting at with Brian Gary. Yeah. So to, in my opinion, this one is really not something that we should make a hard, fast dogma about because I don't think it's as black and white as if it's secular, it must be evil and of the flesh. And if it's praise music, it must be good and glorifying God. I mean, there's some, really uh unsound praise music out there that too you know so i i would say that that's between you and the father and where you're out on your walk like there's some things i can't listen to and some things i still really like to listen to um and i don't i don't feel guilty about listening to a lot of those things um if it's not overtly satanic music i don't see any reason i can't have it on so that's me how do you feel <laughs> Um, in the same vein, right? Yeah. There's some that are that are blatantly worshiping the enemy, yeah. and there's others that are just poets that are putting a tune to it and trying to be heard because they have a good tune. Yeah. So it's just you know uh, you have to take each one at a you know its own case, if you will, you yeah. know. Um. Because yeah, there's a lot of bad Christian music too. That's just yeah. dumb. It's just it's not just dumb, but it's theologically errant. It's theologically. Um, misleading, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And uh, I mean, like, there's entire songs just praising the Trinity. Yeah. And you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wait a minute. This is not a biblical doctrine. Like, yeah. this is not even, you know, but here, we, we don't get off on the Trinity. Tangent, or but. I was just going to say, like, when you're listening to the live, really popular, like Bethel or Hillsong bands, and they go into their spontaneous worship, and it's yeah. like some weird kind of hypnotic stuff going on that you're kind of like, this makes me feel uncomfortable, even though they're saying words that are technically biblical. It's the way that they're delivering that. There's a purpose to what they're doing behind behind it. So, yeah, you know, just leave it to your own discretion. All right, guys, one second. <clears throat> <clears throat> Okay, Rebel Nazarene is asking, who are the strangers cleaving to? Um, who are the strangers cleaving to House of Jacob in Isaiah 14, 1? Who are the servants, handmaids, and captives that Israel will possess in Isaiah 14, 2? Who will Israel rule over? How? How will Israel rule over their oppressors? All right, so let me share this so that we can see the verses. And of course, let me make it bigger. Tell us in the chat, guys. Can y'all hear us very well? Because we're not the normal. We had to like readjust a bunch of stuff. We're not near the mic as close as we used to be. So um, let us know in the chat if you can actually hear us. So uh, basically, um, the foreigner that joins and unites with the house of Jacob for the when it talks about this in Jeremiah 33, 34, Isaiah 33, 35, Isaiah 14, Isaiah 13, a bunch of different places. Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 60, 61, 62, 64, and 66. <laughs> whole bunch of places. The foreigner that joins with Israel is going to be those of the nations 
which is what the foreigner, the term foreigner comes from, those who have um, in faith and belief accepted Christ and now are grafted in and they take part in the resurrection. In addition to those who are judged as sheep at the Matthew 25 sheep and goats judgment, once Yeshua returns to the earth and all nations are gathered before him and he judges them all, the sheep will then be a part of covenant Israel. They're just going to live outside of the New Jerusalem because they're not glorified yet. They can't live inside, but they're still going to be part of covenant Israel. That's why all of the nations will be under the authority of the resurrected saints living inside the New Jerusalem. Okay, so this is how this is why, man, you know, the promise of the covenant, Exodus 19, 5 and 6, is that you'll be made a royal priesthood. And that is brought to fruition. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 through 6, at the resurrection, who takes part in the first resurrection, they rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Yeshua reiterates this promise in Revelation chapter 2, 25 through 28, uh, because it is how he, you know, he gives the, the benefits. He gives the wonderful blessing of having servants under his high priestly authority, because he remember he was resurrected and as the first fruits of the first resurrection, and he was given a priesthood in the Melchizedek order. He is the high priest of that, and we will step into that priesthood at the resurrection. Priests in covenant Israel rule. They're part of the rulership class, if you will. So all the mortals who did not get resurrected but survived the day of the Lord and are now living outside of the New Jerusalem and start repopulating the earth throughout the millennial reign, that is who the covenant Israel, the resurrected glorified saints from inside the city, that is the people that they will rule over during the millennial reign. That's why, as Zechariah 14 talks about, all the nations living outside of New Jerusalem will have to come to the city for feasts. Why do you go to the city for feasts? Because you bring forward your sacrifices, your first fruits, your, your love offerings, your whatever. You bring them forward to the gates where the priest receives them for you. So this is why there's that interaction, just like we see displayed um, in Exodus through Numbers, through Deuteronomy, basically. So that's hopefully that's a decent thorough answer for you. Yeah, and we'll rule over our oppressors because a lot of those mortals who survived might have been, you know, oppressing believers in their lives. Like, I think obviously a lot of those oppressors are going to be destroyed by Yeshua and thrown into the lake of fire at some point. Um, but yeah, just to address that last specific question, you mm -hmm. know, there will be people who are part of the nations who were like me before I came to Christ and didn't, you know, we're still blind to all of this and treated Christians like dirt. <laughs> so I put on screen here, Isaiah 60, verse 14. It says, the sons of your oppressors okay. will come and bow down to you. All who reviled you. This is before the day of the Lord, before the resurrection, before the, the son of the new Jerusalem return. All who reviled you will fall face down at your feet and call you, speaking to the Zion, the new Jerusalem, the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And of course, the glorified saints live inside the city as the, yeah. the rulers, right? So this is why all the nations are drawn to the city, Matthew 25, 31, and have to be judged. And then those who are, are alive after that judgment, they'll be the ones whom glorified, resurrected Israel will rule over uh, at that point, starting the millennial reign. So hopefully, oh, yeah. yeah, hopefully it's a decent Yeah, it's not the Jews in Israel. Yeah, it's not the <laughs> ruling black, over. It's not the black Hebrew Israelites. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, or yeah. them. Because <laughs> there's some messed up theology with, you know, with those verses. <laughs> uh, PG, I would suggest he's asking there, he, 
Okay, so you're going off of something from the 12th century from a rabbi called Rambam who talked about this idea of there being 613 commands. I think that's the guy who started that. Yes. That's not in the scriptures, and those do not all apply to you. Okay, so we always just tell people, you know, the commandments of God, which are the commandments of covenant, it's literally just our discipleship plan, right? It's it's how we step by step can learn to behave like the creator. It's very simple. So just as in any guidebook, you want to do what applies to you. It's really that simple. Just do do the ones that apply to you. Yeah, the 613 thing, um, this rabbi that Sean mentioned, uh, Rambam, I will say that someone will go into the comments and get angry about how either of us are pronouncing yeah, it. But whatever. he went through the five books that we call the Torah and he decided what he thought was a command and what wasn't. So that 613 number has just permeated our culture to the point where people come at you and use that number at you with a we as a weapon if they're trying to be like, oh, you think you're keeping that Torah, huh? You keep every, every 613, you know, all of them. So <laughs> as far as starting to learn to live the Torah, where to start, if you have faith in Yeshua and you've been trying to follow him and live like him, you've already been learning to live the Torah. So all you have to do is go start reading it. Just start reading it. Start studying it daily or every week. You know, a lot of people do a Torah portion. They go through the whole Torah in a year because they... Uh, read a certain segment of it every Shabbat and you just start, just start on page one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, you're already doing the Torah. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're already trying. I'm, I'm guessing if you believe in Yeshua, yeah. uh, you're not lying to people. You're not trying to, you know, kill people, murder you're people. Stealing, you're not stealing. You're not doing witchcraft. Adultery. You're not engaging in, you know, yeah. bestiality or, I mean, I'm, you're already doing tons of Torah. You're, just remember the word Torah just simply means instructions. Yeah. It's, it's God who gave mankind instructions for discipleship, for how to live properly. That's all it is. Don't let Judaism define these terms for you because they're a cult. All right. So uh, thank you, Alex. Alex saying he and his wife teach kids ministry. They appreciate us. Thank you so much, brother. Awesome. Um, Alex, we are not. Um, we've, we've had quite a few people ask us and we just because of our schedule right now, we're not able to to volunteer to be a at a place for for mass baptisms or any type of baptisms to be honest with you so i do apologize brother um you don't need someone special like yeah, you if, you, you can if have you whomever. feel connected to sean that's wonderful we appreciate that but you don't have to have him if you consider him your teacher like you don't have to have him be the one to baptize you i mean the uh eunuch from ethiopia he just met uh who was it uh, Stephen, uh, I believe. Stephen yeah. on the side yeah. of the on the side of the road, literally. So if you have another believer right near you who is, you know, zealous for the Lord and wants to, you know, do that service for you, you know, go ahead. Don't waste any time. Um, Ken, Ken Worth, uh, if brother, if you go to my debates playlist, you will see that I de I debated um, what couple of pastors on the Trinity and we do a full breakdown there on why I don't believe it, including scriptures and everything. So that'd be a good place to start without me diverting this entire Q and a for a lengthy explanation on why the Trinity is absolute not in scripture. Honestly, if you're new here and you're going to start watching videos regularly, you'll hear in a, a majority of videos, at least at some point, Sean, you know, expounding on why the Trinity is a false doctrine. So, yeah. 
Hannibal, um, Kenworth, Hannibal also put in the live chat a separate playlist mm -hmm. where I go through the scriptures video by video. And these videos are only like, you know, 20, 25 minutes long each where I go through five different angles of why the Trinity doesn't work <laughs> from scripture. So if you don't like the, you know, the discussion format or the debate format where there's back and forth with an actual person that believes in the Trinity um, and, and their pastors, by the way, if you don't like that, then this playlist on screen here that Hannibal put up. Um, that also has um, that also has the same ideas broken down in individual videos. Appreciate everybody being here tonight. Yeah, I uh, just realized when we got on tonight that we our shirts match the background. <laughs> I wasn't intending to do that, guys. Do they? Yeah, but uh, just as a side note, um, Sean, when Sean had these made, he was always telling me, you know, I used to have this shirt that just said Jesus on it and it was such a great conversation starter. People would just come up to me and ask me about my shirt and we were at the laundromat today and some guy comes up, what church y'all go to? And starts talking to us about how I'm wearing Jesus and he's wearing Yeshua. And it was, I was like, Hey, you're right. Yeah. And it's, it's supposed to be Yeshua period. It, the way yeah. this font worked out <laughs> with the, the printer, it didn't work out. It's supposed to be Jesus period, Yeshua period. The idea that, you know, that's all you need, right? It's yeah. um, just in case you guys, just in case anyone's new here and they think that we're somehow Judaizing and somehow yeah. claiming that you can't you know, use the name Jesus or we don't like <laughs> the letter J or anything. We're not those kind of people. Out there. I, mean, I was saved by calling on the name of Jesus. So we're not yeah. uh we're not Hebrew rooters, we're just disciples of our Messiah. We just want to do his behavior. His behavior is outlined for us in the commandments, and those are the terms of the covenant of Israel. So this is how we are promised resurrection and eternal life. And so this is why we do them. Amen. All right. Um, Angelo Alv, I think I'm saying the last name right. Angelo Alv. Um, Matthew 22, 12 through 15 is essentially it's about the, you know, the, the wedding supper of the lamb. This is after the resurrection and this is happening inside the new Jerusalem. So. Someone that in this parable, in this story, someone sneaks in, they don't have resurrection clothes, which are the, the, you know, the wedding clothes, if you will, not dressed in wedding clothes for the servants. All the servants are dressed in the wedding garments, right? These are white robes of righteousness that we receive at the resurrection. Uh, this is stated by Yeshua in Revelation 3, 5. And so in this scenario, someone sneaks in who didn't get resurrected. So therefore this wedding feast at this particular moment is not for them. They're going to be thrown outside um, of the city of lights where there's still darkness on the earth because of uh, all the mass. I'm sure there's going to be cloud coverage covering the sun, moon and stars for probably a few months after the events of the day of the Lord. It's going to be pretty rough. That's why everyone comes to the city for food, water and provisions and medicine. And so um, it's going to take a while probably for the ecosystem to clear itself out. I'm just guessing. And, uh, and so anyway, that's where on the outside, there's people that are weeping and angry. So the point of this is why I've always tried to share with people that I believe this wedding supper of the lamb from all indicators is the unleavened bread is Passover uh, and unleavened bread. And so that's why I believe the return of the Lord, according to a bunch of stuff I don't have time to get into, is happening closely to the Passover time of year. 
And then this particular wedding supper of the Lamb is happening once the New Jerusalem sits down. And then people will try to get into it, right? Because there will be people coming to it by the millions. And so anyone that's caught trying to sneak in, they're not supposed to be there. So they're going to be put back on the outside where there will be all mixes of people who haven't been judged yet. And I think that there's going to be five to six months of all these people from all the earth getting to the New Jerusalem during this time from March until the seventh month in approximately September, which is where they're going to stand judgment, um, full judgment in my understanding. So long story short, it's people that haven't been resurrected and that are going to be put outside the New Jerusalem where there'll be people that are weeping the lost, mourned death of their family and loved ones from the Battle of Armageddon, from the great cataclysm that happened on the day of the Lord. There are going to be other people who still hate Yeshua, but are now powerless who are just are being held out there and waiting judgment by the angels. So and is that judgment? Um, is that the sheep and goats? Yeah. Quote unquote? Okay. Yeah. So this is why um, I actually did an entire video on this in our Milky Meek playlist on this channel, and it's called Weeping and Gnashing of Teeth. So if you want a, a full hour and a half explanation on this passage, go check out that video. It's a great question, though. Uh, Cure IX9, you're asking, we know no man has seen the Father, but has the Father himself ever spoken to anyone in Scripture? All right, so this is where we get into the semantics, okay? Yeah. In visions, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Enoch, Daniel, they all see the Father, okay? And sometimes he's like an Enoch, you know, they it, Enoch is being spoken to by the Father, right? But in that vision, he heard the voice of God or someone speaking that was supposed to be the almighty, right? But in the flesh, right? Literally on the earth in the flesh, no man has, has heard, seen the father. And has anyone heard him? Possibly. Um, possibly. If the cleft of the rock... Sorry, one second, guys. <clears throat> yes, there is a precedent for an angel of the Lord being the mouthpiece of the father. <coughs> Excuse me. But at the same time, it's possible that he can come down and speak, which could be why all the extra requirements were done with Moses being hit in the cleft of the rock so that somehow yeah. Yahweh could pass by, you know, and just Moses could see his back and then hear the name of the Lord being pronounced. Did the, did the Lord actually speak in that moment or was it the angel that was there pronouncing the name of the Lord and, and all the other things that are being said in that verse? Um, it's, it's hard to say. Yeah. It's hard to read and, and come to a definitive understanding. But in a vision... Man has seen the father. He looks like a human. Arms, legs, eyes like this. We were made in his image, right? And he has a voice and he speaks and he's kind. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he walks up to Enoch and he's like, hey, just relax. It's okay. You can get up. You can get up. It's, I'm going to show you. This is the son of man. These are the angels. Yeah. You're, you've chosen you for eternal life because you're of your righteous behavior. You're, you're doing well, basically. He, in a long roundabout way, he said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, so like, you know, he's a... Uh, yeah, it just depends on how you're asking, I guess. <clears throat> yeah, and he spoke um, at Yeshua's baptism, right? Yeah, and um, so like a whole bunch of people heard his and his voice or an angel's voice. That's what I was saying. Every time an angel speaks, that'll be the voice of the Lord said or the Lord said. Yeah. But it's you know, unless there's specific text that tells you this was not an angel speaking on yeah. his behalf like we see all these other times this mm -hmm. was absolutely the almighty's voice you just don't know yeah. 
Yeah. Right. So this is why I was saying, yes, in the baptism and also at the transfiguration, we see this is my son. Listen to him. We yeah. hear this amazing voice and Peter and John and the other guys like, oh, my God. What's that? <laughs> so we understand people think this is an amazing thing that's happening. But um, there is an angel that's tasked to speak on the half of the, of the father when, and his voice also can be booming and loud as well. So it's hard to say with some of the text. Uh, thank you so much, Alex Velez, for the super chat. I appreciate that. Thank you guys for the, the encouraging words. We're trying to be a help to people. All right. Navi Sky is asking, how are you doing, sister? She's asking, why are there protective beings around the earth, around the Father? <clears throat> you want thoughts? Um, I mean, obviously he doesn't need to be protected from anyone, but he is a king and he has a throne room and he has a kingdom and there's a hierarchy and a kingdom and there's a structure and there's different classes of the spiritual beings up there and on on earth it is as it is in heaven you know the way that humans have mimicked what the father taught the first humans you know i mean you mean god's so relatable that men on the earth have mimicked and duplicated his yeah. process of being a king with mm -hmm. servants and guards around him that protect him. Yeah. And then he treats all those servants the way that they're supposed to be treated. And so, so he's that, the ultimate example for the, these kingdoms on earth. And we're supposed to be That's like right. his kingdom. So Nabi, the, for the same reason in Exodus it tells us that we should treat an animal, a righteous man treats his animal well. Also a righteous man treats his servants well also, right? It's part of his Torah. How's he going to exemplify his behavior and his expectations for mankind if he's not living it himself. He didn't have to create any of the angels or the, the beasts that are around the throne. Yeah. But he wanted to show mankind, this is how you treat things that are not uh, mankind or angelic class, animal style, animal kinds. This is how you treat mankind. This is how you treat angelic kind. This is how you, he wanted to show because he he's not hypocritical. He does everything he asks us to do. So therefore, he exists in the type of framework that he can show by example. And same thing with his son coming to earth. All in context, though, right? All in context, though. The father's not up there showing people how to mate with a woman, right? Because that's not in context for him. He's an eternal being. So it's it's the context that matters. But the point is, as much as is applicable to him, he's trying to show mankind. He doesn't have a period, so therefore he's not going to show a woman how to obey the the instructions right. for menstrual time and what to do and what not to do, right? To remain clean, to come before his throne. So the point is all in context, but in those, in that specific context of why, why would he have protected beings like these, these, um, these beasts and these uh, angels around him? Like why he's so powerful. He could just, nobody could take him on anyway. Well, it's a wonderful example of him to show us how to love others, especially others under your control, because at the resurrection, you and I, we need that example because the angels will be under our authority after we're resurrected and glorified. So we need to know, and, and the Father is showing that example, we need to show them love and treat them according to Torah because we will. We'll be glorified. We'll have his heart, but that's, that's the example. Yeah, and as far as the, you know, protective beasts, I mean, maybe the father is, you know, a lot like us. We have our protective beasts here in our house, our doggos, and we love to have them, you know, sitting at our feet so we can hang out with them and love on them and pet them. So, yeah, maybe there is pets. Maybe. <laughs> um, SKB 7505, this is the million-dollar question. Million-dollar question. Mm. 
we know post flood they did, but or at least I would I feel like there's a lot to conclude that they did post flood because it's a different type of Nephilim. They're not an unclean spiritual being. They're just a genetically modified man. But uh, it's a great question. Um, and in my book, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to I'm going to I, I try to address it actually in my days of the Daler's book, but I don't um, I don't give you I don't give a definitive answer because I honestly don't know. But I, yeah. I tease it throughout the story as far as the people know have to interact with. And are they going to do what's right or not? They definitely seem to be required to follow the bidding of their master or the master because they are under um mestima um, yeah, satan, satan yeah. in jubilees and then they also have to listen to yeshua when he tells them to leave somebody and go into you know whatever he sends them into and they're begging him not to send them you know to the pit before their appointed time so they there's definitely something different going on with their, those spirits than what goes on with the human spirit um, man rising. I appreciate the question. I don't know yet. I haven't spoken to Ken about this specific one. So I apologize. I don't have an answer for you. Matthew, what are your appreciate? Appreciate you, bro. Thank you for the super sticker. That's awesome. Thank you. We should, you know, like some streamers that have all kinds of bells and whistles and horns and things that go off and all kinds of graphics when people, I don't, I don't have any of this. I don't know how they do all that stuff. Right. So I don't have any I didn't stuff. know YouTubers. Yeah. Those. <laughs> there's lots of streamers that have these separate programs and whenever people give a super chat or a, any kind of donation or whatever, they have like all these things that happen and lights and whistles and bells and, you know, little emojis that dance across the screen. And I don't know. Well, how about every time someone gives a super chat, you just sing. I don't think that would be a reward for them. <laughs> I say, how about every time they give a super chat, we put it on the screen and say, thanks, guys. We love yeah. you. <laughs> Can do. <laughs> yeah, we definitely appreciate all the new people here tonight. Definitely seen some new names. Okay, Craig, Sims, Craig Simmons is asking, is the wheat and tares and the sheep and goats judgment the same? Um, not technically. Um, there's not really a wheat and tares judgment. There's a wheat is taken is Matthew 13 30. The wheat is the synonym for the resurrected saints taken to the new Jerusalem. That's the barn that the angels grab the wheat and take it up to the tares are all the enemies that are being gathered for the day of the Lord that are going to be burned with fire when you and the angels come down. Right? So those are the enemy armies that are gathered. So it's Yes, it's like a form of judgment, but it's not the same concept as Yeshua sitting on his throne and gathering a bunch of people single file or All one by who one. Survived or, that, yeah, those events. It's totally different context yeah. to the type of judgment. It's like judgment immediately by death because you're engaging in battle against yeah. the Son of God versus coming before the Son of God and every idle word and deed being judged because that's what he does. Luke, I think it's Luke 12 36. And um, this is what's going to happen to sheep, sheep and goats judgment, right? This is how, why he has that conversation with those people. And it says to the sheep, you did these certain behaviors, which were all in Torah, by the way. So therefore you can, you know, you come inherit this kingdom as like, like all the other saints, right? Like you're good. And they respect him. They respect his authority. They want to be there. They want to be saved and they, they want what they're seeing. The goats didn't exemplify the heart that he's looking for or the actions he's looking for. And then, they're, they're the gnashing of teeth people, right? Mm -hmm. They're the people that hate him. This is the Leviticus, I think it's chapter 7, verse 11, that you know, everyone who hates God, he will repay them to their face. 
So <laughs> this is a, this is that awkward moment where it's going to get really cringy, where these people are going to get really sideways with the Son of God, and the angel's going to take them off into the valley and kill them, and they'll be destroyed and off the earth. So it's uh, two different types of judgments, but hopefully it's a decent answer for you, brother. Uh, Jason Kinney, I'm looking at both of your questions. I don't understand either. I think he's asking if John, if John wrote Mark. I think he meant to say if John also ask if John also wrote Mark. Yeah, I don't understand it. If you could reword your question, we'd love to get to it, brother. Just just reword it if you could. PG is asking, is there a scripture reference ending? Is there a scripture referencing end time remnant saints returning to Torah? To my understanding, yes, it's Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 2. And um, Jubilees. Chapter 23. Uh, um, isn't it like in the first or second chapter of Jubilees? It says they'll um, remember his. No, I'm sorry. It's chapter 6, verse 23. Then also in chapter one, I think it's, it's somewhere of like between 17 through 20. Yeah, like it literally yeah. says his people will remember his ways and return to them. Yeah, but that the context of chapter one. Um, anyway, yeah. So there's there's <laughs> several spots for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, we think that like we kind of um, in our hashtags on our Facebook pages and stuff, we've referred to what's happening now with all these people waking up to the fullness of the Torah. We have been referring to that as the Deuteronomy 30 awakening. So we kind of feel like that's happening right now as more and more people are realizing why they've you know felt so poorly fed all their faith lives <laughs> okay um now i did answer this the other night but it was on a different channel so i should probably answer it again okay. and we haven't answered this it's probably been six months since we've answered this so what are our thoughts on the sefer bible We've never used it to read from. Next question. No, I'm just playing. Um, <laughs> guys, we don't, <laughs> we don't, we don't want to bash other ministries. We, a lot of people put a lot of effort into what they're doing, and they, you know, we, we never want to assume ill intent from from their efforts. There's just sometimes that other ministries put forward things and resources that uh, we don't agree with. Okay, so this particular resource called the Sefer, um, the biggest thing I have an issue with it is the Trinitarian bias that's in the translation. Um, the second biggest thing I have issue with it is the effect that it has on people who study it only, and they start speaking Hebrewish. They don't start. They don't remain relatable to the people that need to hear the truth of God's word. So, you know. It's you, you walk into, say if you're a say if you're a believer in another country and you found a church in say Turkey and you found a group of believers in Turkey and you walked in there and they're all speaking Turkish or whatever do they speak Turkish in modern day Turkey. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Turkish. Is yeah. that the language? Mm -hmm. And so, because Farsi is in Iran, right? I don't they know. speak Farsi. <laughs> Either way, um, 
if they if they're speaking an entirely different language, you understand what they're saying, you're not going to be edified. And so unfortunately, because of the translated words and how they're translated in this partial English, partial Hebrew, transliteration Hebrew, it's not even actual Hebrew, it's transliterated Hebrew. Um, so many people, they're the unintended consequence is that they come out speaking the same way they're reading the Bible. No one understands them. And it becomes its own little sub-community that we don't, we've seen it push people away more than it draws them in. Yeah. If that makes any sense. So we don't like to promote that. We want to, we want to reach out to the unbeliever. We want to reach out to the people that are in mainstream churches who don't understand the fullness of the scriptures. And we want to reach out to them in the most relatable way possible, which is clearly with the same tongue that they speak, right? So that's that's one of the big two that I'll just leave it at that. For me personally, it really is just an issue of readability. I just prefer um, an easier to read translation. Um, and that's would be the same as people who um, don't like reading the KJV because of the old English. Um, I like the KJV for some reason, the old English or something about it that it I used to be really into Shakespeare, maybe, and I, I don't have a trouble with the old English. Um, but if I can relate how I feel about the Sefer to something that some other people might understand, you know, it's the same way that some people feel like they can't handle all the these and vows in the KJV. I I personally, it's I struggle to read through a chapter in the Sefer because of the Hebrew transliterated words. So for me, it's just a personal preference issue. Uh, we don't believe that it's an evil book needing to be burned. And we don't believe that the brother who translated it uh, is anything but a brother in the Lord. So it's just a personal preference. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> there's another question here I'm trying to address. I'm just trying to look up the scripture real quick. Okay, I don't see. But um, ultimately, Caleb. All right, real quick, though. Donnie's asked a few times. Donnie, I apologize, brother. We don't have a lot of thoughts on Kazarians. We don't. Um, I apologize. I don't have a lot of thoughts on them as far as, you know, all the conclusions I've seen other people bring to this particular ethnic group. So we just we just call all people to faith and repentance regardless of where they come from. We know about as, about, as much about the Khazarians as we do the Tartarians. <laughs> All right. So Caleb is asking, did King David have Gibberim lion men who fought for him who were righteous? Well, I'm trying to understand the question, Caleb, as far as are you assuming he did have them and were they righteous or not righteous or did he have them? And if he had them, were they righteous or unrighteous? So are you assuming that he had them? I don't see any texts that would support that he had them. I do see texts that talk about the aerials and the lion-like men of Moab. Um, I talk about that in my Investigated Babylon series. It's one of the different chimeric uh, versions of chimera, chimeras from the ancient world um, was the mixture of lion and men. And that leads me to the thought, like I said earlier, which is the million-dollar question. Can a Nephilim repent. Can a Nephilim receive salvation? That's why I said there seems to be a stark difference, and I've taught, I've taught this for years, between the Nephilim before the flood and after the flood. Before the flood, they're the direct progeny and manipulated offspring of the watchers. They're called unclean spirits. Post-flood, they're referred to as Nephilim 
and big men. So that you can do without changing your eternal order of, of kind. You can still remain as a part of mankind. You're no longer a spirit kind, or you're not a spirit kind, like an unclean spirit. You're of mankind. You're just genetically altered, whether it's they, you know, you've grown four arms or whether you are been cross hybridized with a lion or with, you know, um, part of a scorpion or with, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Did they ask to be made that way? Of course not. Could they repent? I suspect they could because they didn't ask to be born like that. Yeah. And they're not called spiritual beings, unclean spiritual beings. They're just considered hybridized men. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, if, if all, you know, all of my speculation and deduction from all those different passages that describe all that post flood, very important distinction, post flood Nephilim, from my understanding, if, if they were genetically altered man, then they could have repented. At the resurrection, they'll be made fully fully resurrected man, and they won't still be some weird hybrid that was forced upon them by the ways of Babylon, if that makes any sense. So they'll be free of that horrendous, horrendous existence. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Can you imagine that? No, you know, and that's something that can bring comfort for those of us who went way down the rabbit hole of, you know, satanic ritual abuse and underground bunkers yeah. and, you know, the, the things that they do to babies and human beings in the darkness that the public doesn't know about, you know, it's, there's a comfort there for those people who are born into those situations that they did not ask for. All right. So Tom is asking, is Jesus the only one so far who's been resurrected into the new spirit body? Yes. yes. That's why it's called the first fruits of the first resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. Um, Alan, yes, we have heard Matthew's teaching. I, I actually commented on that video uh, in the comments and gave a full breakdown on, on our view as well of that. Uh, we've actually talked about this and other other teachings and other Torah portions in the past I've done on this. I've covered second, second uh, Kings 17, excuse me. 2 Kings chapter 5 and the story of uh, Naaman. And so that's in one of my previous Torah portions. You should see in the title card of the thumbnail, 2 Kings 5, as one of the companion passages. And then in that portion, I go over it as well. But in much agreement with Matthew, as far as the way he broke it down, um, we just don't encourage people to do it. We just don't think that it's, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah. We're basically like, we don't think any of us are priests who are qualified to be doing it. Is that how we word it? That's not, there's a little bit more detail. Than that. There's a little bit more detail. <laughs> if you go to Matthew's video and look in the comments, you'll see our whole, I, I broke it down. Breakdown of it. <laughs> I broke it down. I, but yeah, that would derail into a 30 minute conversation yeah. <laughs> and we wouldn't be able to answer any more questions. That's why I'm trying to give it a quick, you know, appreciate the question, Alan. I'm just trying to uh, make, Make use of the timer. That's a big, big topic. Uh, I don't, Tom, I don't know anything about a gospel cue. I apologize. Um, I don't know anything about that. All right. Jason Kinney is asking, is Mark also John's account of what happened? So let's I go was to Acts. I'm wondering this because of Acts 12 12. So let's go to Acts 12 12 and read that verse. Sure, let's be sure. <laughs> okay. 
And when he'd realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered together and were praying. He knocked out the outer gate and the servant girl Rhonda came to, Rhoda came to answer it. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she forgot to open the gate, but ran inside and announced Peter standing at the gate. Um, the reason why I don't think this is the same person is because of the, the uh, epistle letters of John and how John is someone that, as far as I can understand, in Acts chapter 15, was a part of the, the council in Jerusalem that was one of the elders, the, one of the people that were in charge. And, uh, and not, um, as far as I can understand, was not also called Mark. Mark, if, if I'm remembering right, was the one that accompanied Paul on a missionary journey, but then got afraid at one point and left. And so um, he would not have been the John that walked with Yeshua. He was much younger and would have been under the authority of John and the, count, uh, the head council in Acts 15 in the you know as in a companion with with uh paul paul was under the authority of john and james and peter so paul wasn't over them and in, in their hierarchical view of apostleship um because so anyway that's that's my understanding of it um so i would not think that this is talking and connecting the gospel the writer of the gospel of john with this word mark because i, I don't i don't see that lots of people unfortunately had different names remember simon peter was yes. called simon and peter yeah. There was another dude in Acts chapter 16 called Simon the Sorcerer. There's, you know, there's there's lots of similar names in this region, especially among the Hebrew people. They yeah. they repeated and recycled names a lot. Uh, Virginia Powers, not yet. I appreciate the appreciate the, the shout out or the asking about it, but not yet, unfortunately. We're still working on some things. All right. Paradise in scripture. All right. So Najee Owens is asking, is paradise in the same place as before the resurrection of Yeshua? Paradise is always referring to the Garden of Eden that comes back as the New Jerusalem. Yeshua went to Sheol to what is he calls in his own parable in Luke 16, 19 through 41, he calls it the bosom of Abraham, basically, right? It's what Enoch in the book of first Enoch considers this uh, subterranean world where the spirit of man goes and there's multiple compartments depending on who you were in life and how you lived your life. So the righteous go into the righteous area of Sheol. That's always been there. That's been consistent both before Yeshua was on the earth from Adam until now. <laughs> in fact, Sheol is going to be there from Adam, from the creation of the world until the end of the millennial reign. And that's going to receive the dead souls of mankind according to what's going on in the earth above. Um, and the first and second resurrection timing. So there's, there's a big story there. But paradise has always been the Garden of Eden. And this, a lot of people are asking this because of Yeshua speaking to the thief next to him on the cross, saying, today I tell you the truth, you'll be with me in paradise. And they think that it means that, you know, for one, Yeshua did not um, uh, did not go to heaven, so he didn't go to the New Jerusalem. He went to Sheol, right? Um, he's telling, remember, what the thief on the cross is asking him is, when you come into your kingdom, that's where paradise is, the kingdom of God, the New Jerusalem. So he asks Yeshua, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? And Yeshua tells him, 
who's the king of the kingdom, who also has the authority to resurrect that guy when the time comes. He tells that guy, I tell you the truth, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So he wasn't saying that to that specific day, they were both going to die and go to paradise because that's not how the big story works. He was just saying, I truly, I tell you today, that was just a common way they spoke to say the fervency of, you know, in this day, I, I marked the day where I told you this, mark the day down, right? You will be with me at the resurrection in paradise. I, I added the resurrection. I know that. I'm just telling you, this is what he's communicating to him because they all knew what paradise was. This is why Paul repeats where paradise is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Also, it's told to us in Revelation chapter 2 and also Revelation 22. It's the paradise of God is the new Jerusalem. So hopefully that's a decent answer for you. All right, I'm going to take just a couple more questions. Hours already flown by. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, Road, Road Coaster, just keep asking. Uh, I don't see the... I didn't see. I didn't see your question. Yeah, neither have the moderators. So, you know, it just happens. If if you're trying to put a link, it's not going to show. If you're trying to put a link to anything, it will not show your question. So just, um, I guess, keep that in mind. All right. Vader Bear is asking, um, what is this, a few questions? <laughs> What's up, Vader Bear? He's asking Genesis 17, 5, 17, 15, 32, 28, and with John 1, 42. We see examples of name changes. Why do we not get this for Saul to Paul? Is this a sacred cow? Is Am I missing something? I love Paul. Um, we don't get that for a lot of characters. Uh, we don't get that with uh, in the book of Exodus, where at one point it mentions Moses' father-in-law is called Ruel. Another point it's called him Jethro. Yeah. We don't, we don't, I mean, um, but he's talking specifically going from a Hebrew name to a Greek name. Got it. This is what we've tried to say for so long now uh, when it comes to the sacred name debate. Names translate. Yeah. My name is Juan in Spanish. I don't go by that. It's Jean in French. I don't go by that. But if I went to those two countries and tried to respectively be spoken of in their native tongue, that's what they would refer to me as. So names translate. That's that's what we try to remind people. I know that the sacred name crowd doesn't want to accept that. Also, just, there's no such thing as an evil language, save possibly for demonic tongues, which is yeah, something is that? that, you know, I... They didn't create the languages either. Yeah, so the languages came from the Father. He's the one who split everyone up back at the Tower of Babel and gave everyone different languages. And then languages naturally evolved from there. It's just a completely normal human process. So anyone suggesting that that's a reason to bring Paul into question is because, oh, now he's got a Greek name, as if the Greek language is somehow just evil in and of itself, <clears throat> I would recommend you stop following that person's teachings about Paul. Yeah, it's a lot of silliness when it, people just forget that the father is the one that created the multiple languages. Like yeah. They're not inherently evil. All right. Um, I'm sorry. Is there furthermore? I was just going to say that English itself is another language I've heard in our community attacked as it's as if it's some conspiratorial thing that was created to keep people on, literally under a spell. That's why it's called spelling. I mean, if you just research just a little bit of history, the the 
the development of English is very well documented. I mean, if you want historical proof of how it was formed, where it came from, how it, you know, ended up with all the different forms we have today, there's ample, ample evidence for you to go look into for that. So, yeah. Puzzled Penguin asks, how do I spread Torah in modern day churches without causing division? Is it worth the arguments? Mm. Depends on your heart, depends on how much patience you have. Um, it depends on what you view as an argument, right? Some people don't like any disagreement. They think all disagreement is debate. I'm clearly not that guy because I invite pastors onto my channel and say, can we talk about this? And they get all riled up and I'm over here being calm, being like, bro, pull your, pull your britches out your craw and <laughs> let's just try to talk patiently for a minute because I have a question that I don't feel is being addressed and you're just getting flustered. So it all depends on your temperament and how you can handle that situation, whether in love or in patience. And if you can't, I would not suggest engaging in that. But at the same time, I feel called to engage in that because I literally see how much ripe fruit is in the church that wants to know God. They just are sitting under poor teachers and not being shown a clear path to discipleship, which is the fullness of God's word. So to me, I don't even I don't even think of it as wasted or expended energy. It's just me. It's just my mission. It's just what I feel equipped to do is in this world, in this life, right? Is that I know that I want to reach out to pastors and have a friendly conversation and to the best of my ability, I want to keep it as friendly as possible um, because I know that there's a lot, there should not be 40,000 different denominations of Christianity. There should not be two. There should be one body, one faith, one Lord, one God of all, right? First, first, uh, I don't, I can't remember the word, Philippians four, I think. So, there should just simply be one family, one ecclesia, all following the same instruction to be like the son of God. It's very simple, right? We want to do the behavior of God and his son. Yeah. And if you're not called to do those, which a lot of us aren't, I'm not, I'm not called to reach out to pastors and have conversations with them myself. I'm not, I don't have the patience for it. I'm not skilled enough, but the way that I spread Torah in the world. And if I'm at a church is by living it and not being not being afraid to say I live it, um, but also not walking around with, you know, seat seats down to the floor, announcing it everywhere I go. If you feel called, there's a lot of people in our community who feel called to stay in their churches that they're in and be a light to the people in those churches. And so they're not necessarily going around inviting the discussion verbally, but they may be inviting discussion and questions just through the way that they're li they're living and, you know, uh, witnessing to people that, oh, yeah, we won't be at the potluck on Saturday. We keep the Sabbath. So we'll be doing such and such and this and that. But we'll be here on Sunday to help with the choir. However, whatever people are feeling called to do in their churches that they're still in, you know, you can shine the light of the Torah without, um, you know, being a skilled um someone who's skilled at discussing it with people and handling rebuttals and things like that. So it really just depends on how you feel the father is calling you to spread the Torah in those churches. Yeah. Still with love and patience. Remember yeah. you're sowing seeds. That's what we talk about all the time. Mark four fourteen, right? The sower sows the word. The father's the one that comes along later that waters it and reaps a harvest where he did not sow. You yeah. see what I'm saying? So we're just doing our part to just sow the word, let the father deal with it, with them. We just be patient, loving when we do it. That's what I would suggest. Uh, Jason Kinney, we weren't trying to say that the Acts 12, 12 um, person called Mark, who's also called John, wasn't saying that that might not be the mark of, of the person who wrote the gospel of Mark that would have 
been a disciple to follow Yeshua. We're just saying we don't think it's also the same guy who wrote John. If that makes any sense. If, at least if I was understanding your question properly. Um, so, no, I, I do believe there was a disciple John and a disciple Mark and a disciple Matthew. And then Luke actually was not a disciple of Yeshua. And uh, he's the one that wrote the book of Acts. And supposedly he's receiving the accounts as it was told to him. And he was uh, very methodical in how he recorded the accounts. Um, but no. So, yeah, I, I guess. Sorry. Sorry for the miscommunication. Trying to trying our best through this medium to actually understand your question. Um, yeah. One last question and we'll take off, guys. Sorry. It's. um. We haven't had dinner yet. We haven't had dinner. <laughs> I've had a super long day and yeah, uh, my getting, brain's already done. Getting hangry. <laughs> I need to. Uh, I'm not hangry. I said getting. We're getting. I'm not getting. Hangry. I'm not, I'm, we're I'm getting, getting to the point where hangriness might be an issue. We want, we're hungry. We want to go. I'm not, I'm not feeling that. I'm just, I just, my brain's just really, really tired. Um, let's see, just take one more. So trying to find one. While Sean is scrolling, I just wanted to um, remind people and also let people know who weren't here at the beginning. Um, if you check in the description of this video, we do have a sister who has some serious needs that we've brought forth to the body. Um, she's a single mother of three, and she lost her whole house and her vehicle in the tornadoes in um, Tennessee that happened last December. Um, and so we're just trying to help her get another vehicle and yeah. get a little bit of rent covered for the roof over her head. Um, so if you weren't here at the beginning, we did talk about that and those details are in the description below. So yeah. thank you very much for prayerfully considering helping, uh, helping out. out with that. Yes, absolutely. So uh, Craig Simmons is asking, do the people offer sin offerings in the millennial reign? So if they're not resurrected, yes, mm -hmm. they'll still be sinning. They're, these are the people that are repopulating the earth, living outside of the New Jerusalem. Okay, so then, yes, they will still be normal, mortal mankind, full of weaknesses like we are right now. And, uh, yeah, they will be offering um, the sin offerings as required for, you know, for the law of God. So, yeah, this is we, we see about this in Exodus 45 or Ezekiel 45. It talks about that as well. And it goes through all the, the offerings, the sin offerings, guilt offerings and everything. And the feast offerings of different kinds. So absolutely. Yeah, we're going to be having yummy barbecues in the kingdom. That's right. And part of that priesthood is to be receiving those offerings from the people at the doorway of the temple, which would be the New Jerusalem, in my understanding. Um, and so then there, or, well, it gets a little bit more than that. It's, I, yeah, that's that's a whole <laughs> nother, I can't go for yeah. 30 minutes on that. But <laughs> it's more detail. Just point is, yes, there's an interaction between the resurrected priesthood, which is the glorified saints and the people living outside. They're bringing their offerings forward. We're receiving them to have them properly prepared for the actual meal sacrifice of atonement. Um, so, yes, this is why the Father's ways are forever. So if there's sin still here on the earth, then it has to be dealt with in the same way he's always dealt with it. Yeah. The same way your Messiah <laughs> is dealing with it on your behalf right now in the heavenly temple, mm. per 1 Timothy 2.5 and 1 John 1.9, Hebrews chapter 8, 1-5, right? So if Yeshua is ministering in a heavenly temple, and when you ask for uh, sin, confession, and atonement, he goes through a process to make that happen in that temple, just like described um, for the temple on the ground in, in Exodus to, to Deuteronomy. So it's um, consistent. The things that go on in heaven were the instructions we were given to practice on the earth. It's all consistent. 
But uh, yeah, any last thoughts before we go, sweetie? Uh, no, just thank you guys for joining us. Um, as I said on our last live, I am finally out of uh, whatever funk I was going through after some tragedy I experienced last year. I'm feeling more comfortable, you know, um, getting back on screen with Sean. So I'm going to try and be here more often for our Q&As because um, Sean is also, his work has ramped up outside of the ministry and he's going to be super busy. He has been, as you guys might have been able to tell. Um, and so we don't want content to suffer too much for that. So we're going to, you're going to be seeing quite a few more live Q and A's and a little less um, prepared long teachings. Cause that's what takes Sean so much time um, so that we can also have time to still try and get the Torah portions done every week. So which, I just, which is it's still, a it's struggle. a real challenge. It's, um, a, it's such a strange, that particular broadcast takes me like three times as long as other broadcasts to prepare for. Well, you're so, very particular about it. He's very <laughs> methodical about the Torah portion and how yeah. he lays it out. So, you know, it is in how he's putting the whole lesson together. But so I'll, I'm going to just want to say, you know, thanks for being here. And, um, you know, thanks for your patience while I was not around for a while. But I'm going to try and be here a little more often as I'm feeling comfortable, too. And, yeah, we just love you guys and really appreciate all your support. And Shabbat Shalom to anyone who's Shabbatin right now. Absolutely. One last question. Angela, I'll go read the book of Jubilees, chapter 11 and 12, and it'll give you your answer. Thank you guys so much. We appreciate all of you, and we hope to see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye.